We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ, and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. simply means good news. So our Sunday school classes, if you're in one of those, have recently began a study on the gospel uh, where they'll be taking a look over several weeks at what that word means, what the gospel is, what is this good news, this message that we believe together. But the thing about good news is that good news implies there was bad news. And so whenever we think about the good news, we have to understand what the bad news was in order to understand how gloriously good God's grace is in the good news of the gospel. And so what we're starting today is a series called The Fall in Genesis chapter 3 through 11, and we're going to be taking the next several weeks to look at what went wrong in God's good plan. And if you remember back to our series called Beginnings, we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and what we saw there is that God made everything, the heavens and the earth, and when he was done, he, each day he went through and he called it good, what he had made, and then when he was done, he called it very good. And what good meant there was that it was functioning according to its intended purpose, that God had laid out how things should be and that things were operating according to how he had designed them, both for his glory and our good as human beings created in his image. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3, just a couple of chapters into the Bible, and we find out where things went wrong. We come to this chapter that, that many Christian theologians and pastors and scholars have called the fall. So we began looking at, in Genesis 1 and 2, at the creation, and now we're looking at the fall so that we can understand what God is doing in redemption and restoration through Jesus Christ. And so we're going to take several weeks to look at Genesis chapters 3 through 11 as we look at how sin and evil entered into the world and what went wrong. So when you think about that word fall, what do you think of? When you, just the word fall. Maybe you think of your fear of heights and that dream that you happen, happen to have way too often where you're just falling the entire time until the dream ends and you're awake and then you're, you're sweating and you're, and you're just done. Or maybe when you think of fall, you think of the season fall when, when the leaves start to die and fall off the trees because things have begun to get cold as winter approaches and, and things start to die. Or maybe you think about uh, one time where you stumbled and tripped, whether it was over something or over your own two feet, though you would never admit that. Um, but you think about when things go wrong, when things start to die, when things start to go the way they shouldn't be going. We start to think about the ways in which things go wrong. And when we think about the season of fall, the good news is that there's spring coming. After winter, after this season where everything is cold and dead, comes new life. 
And it's the same thing when we look at God's plan, his redemptive plan in the Bible. We see him creating everything as good. And then in Genesis chapter 3 today, we're going to see where things went wrong in the fall of mankind when sin entered into the world. And then we're going to look at the hope that God brings of new life through Jesus Christ. So turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 today. And I'll read our passage for us, and then we'll jump in. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Would you pray with me? God, we ask right now that you would help us, that you would give us your wisdom as we study your word, that we might know your plans for us, that you might guide us into truth, that you might give us understanding, and Lord, that as we look at the ways in which things have gone wrong in our lives, the ways in which sin has impacted us, the ways in which we have sinned against you. God, we pray, would you help us to not live under the weight of shame, but to live in the freedom and the grace that can be found in Jesus Christ. So God, we pray for your help and your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's four things that I want us to notice as we look at Genesis chapter three today. And the first one is that sin, this idea of sin, it begins with doubt and confusion in verses 1 through 5. And so when we talk about sin, oftentimes we don't, we don't take time to define it. You know, it's just kind of this word that we use a lot in Christian circles, and then we don't really define what it means. And so we're talking about something, and we're talking about it a lot because it's a part of our lives, and we don't really understand what's happening. Well, so, so what is sin? Well, the word sin often means just missing the mark. It means missing the intended direction, the intended purpose. It means going the other way against God's good designs. And so I think a good way that we can look at sin is simply by defining it as any and every way that we rebel against God and his good will for our lives through actions, thoughts, or desires. And so sin, it's not just our actions against God. It's not just the things that we do. It's also the things that we believe or desire and want that are contrary to God's good plans for us. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see where sin enters into the world and how it begins to make things go awry. And so sin begins with doubt and confusion. In verse 1, we're introduced to this character called the serpent. And if you don't know much about the serpent, then it's helpful to think about who is this serpent? What do we know about him? 
Well, elsewhere in Scripture, he's referred to as Satan or the accuser or the persecutor of God's people. Elsewhere in, in Revelation, we also read that he's called that great dragon, that serpent of old. And so he's referred to by different names and different titles that get at different aspects of who this being is throughout the Scriptures. And we see him in Genesis chapter 3 introduced as the serpent. And here's what Genesis chapter 3 has to say about him. It says, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so there's a few things that we can understand about this, this evil creature, this evil being that introduces doubt and confusion into God's good world. The first thing we see is that the serpent was crafty, or some of your translations might say cunning which simply means that this, this being is incredibly smart in a devious way. He's able to deceive and, and, and trick in a way that is profound. So whenever we think about our enemy, Christians, we have to understand that our enemy is wise in a sense. He is cunning. He is crafty. He is smart. And so that ought to cause us to get to know God's word more so that we would not be a victim of that cunning deceit. We also read that the serpent uh, was a created being. It says then he was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so this is great news for us believers because what we see here is that even this great evil being who introduces sin and temptation and evil into God's good world is a being that is made by God himself. Now why is that good news? It's good news because God remains sovereign over our enemy. There is nothing that the serpent can do without God's permission and plans. And so when you think about the Bible, you think about Job, which was also written uh, a, a long time ago, uh, close to when Genesis was written to some degree, and, and you think about what happens in that book of Job, you see that Satan repeatedly makes requests to tempt Job in different ways, to afflict him with different things, and he cannot do it without God's permission, because God is the one who is always in control. And that is no less true in Genesis chapter 3 than it was in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The creator remains sovereign and in complete control even when things go awry in your life. There is no situation in life that God is not sovereign over. There is no time in your life where you are experiencing suffering or sin that God is not still on the throne. God is the creator of everything that we see. And that includes the things that attempt to rebel against his plans. And his plan is so good that he does not leave things as they are when they go wrong. And in fact, he brings about redemption and restoration. So the serpent was crafty. He was cunning. He was made by God. And then we see that the serpent speaks. So this is often the way that our enemy tries to tempt us as he uses words. We see that, that in Scripture he's called the author of lies. He is by nature a deceiver, and he speaks in order to get us to rebel against the God who has spoken to us. And so he speaks to the woman, and the first thing that he says is, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, so the serpent questions God's word in verse 1, and, he, and the thing about doubt, the thing about this doubt that results in sin 
is that doubt involves this questioning of both the meaning and the attainability of what God has said, what God has planned, what God has laid out. And so you'll notice that the serpent says, did God actually say? So he's questioning the meaning of God's words, what God has said. He said, did God actually mean that? I mean, that seems just kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, that God would say, don't eat of any tree that he's provided for you. I mean, he gave them to you. Why wouldn't you eat of them? So he starts to question what God means by his words. And then he begins to question the attainability of God's word. He says, really, you can't eat of any tree that God has given you? But what we know is that that's not actually what God has said. That this is an attempt to bring questions in Adam and Eve. This is an attempt to tempt them to rebel against God's word and God's plans for them. This is an attempt to introduce doubt into their relationship with God. This is how sin begins, when we begin to doubt both the meaning and the attainability of what God has said to us, of his plans for us. When, you know, back to Cameron's analogy that he used in, in worship with his own son, with Declan, you know, there's just this idea that you know, the, the serpent is tempting us to believe that, that God would withhold good things from us. That, that he would make it hard for us. When in reality, God has given us everything that we need and everything that is good for us. And the only things that he keeps back from us are the things that would destroy us. That's why good fathers don't let their sons play with glass. They give them toys to play with. They give them food that they need. They help them. They provide a good, safe environment for them. They don't give them glass that could damage them and cut them and tear them apart. And it's the same thing in Genesis chapter 3. What God has done in Genesis 1 and 2 is he has given us every good thing that we could possibly need, including himself. And what the serpent tries to introduce is this this temptation that's based on a lie. It's deception. He's saying, did God really say, don't eat any of the trees? No, God didn't say that. But the thing is, is that you and I, we often don't know God's word as well as we should. That's what we see next, is that the woman is confused about God's word in verses 2 and 3. Here's here's how she responds. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So she knows God has provided these trees for us to eat as a good thing. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So far, so good. And then look what she says. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The problem with Eve's response here is that God didn't say that. God said everything else that she responded with, but this neither shall you touch it part was not part of what God had said. And so whether, whether Adam uh, c- conveyed what God had said incorrectly to her, maybe Adam didn't know God's word as well as he should have. Whatever happened here, the Bible doesn't tell us what happened leading up to this, but, but it just shows us how Eve responds and that Eve misquotes God's word. She's confused about what God has actually said. And so she's in a vulnerable position whenever the serpent comes to tempt her. Because, friends, when we don't know what God has actually said, it's a lot harder when temptation and trials come. 
when we don't know who God is and what God has planned for us and what he has told us to walk in, it is a lot harder to fight against temptation and trials in our lives. And we are in a lot more vulnerable position when the tempter comes to us. Whenever we don't know God's word, whenever we don't dive into God's word and read it and talk about it and pray through it and discuss it together and apply it to our own lives, whenever we are not saturating our lives and meditating on God's words, we are vulnerable to confusion and doubt. Next, we see that the serpent doesn't just question God's word, he outright denies it. Verses four and five, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So he outright denies what God has said will happen. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the the serpent here says there's no consequences if you disobey God's word. You're not going to die. What he said isn't true. That won't happen. The problem is, is that what God says always happens. What God declares to be true is always true because there are no lies in God. And so he outright denies God's word, saying there's no consequences if you rebel against God. And then he says, this will actually be good for you. God just wants to withhold good things from you. And if you'll actually go after this, then, then you'll receive what will actually bring you joy and meaning. He also says, you know what's best for you. See, God's trying to withhold things. He, he knows that you're just gonna, you're gonna grow if you do this. He knows you're gonna be better if you do this. You're gonna be a better version of you if you do this. If you do what you want, you're gonna have more joy in life. If you do what you think is right, your life's gonna be better. And it's because we don't know what God has said. We don't know that from the beginning we were made to be dependent on him. That we weren't made to live life isolated and apart from him. And so we're tempted to believe it when the serpent comes to us and says, you know what's best. You know what's going to bring you the most joy. And then we indulge, don't we? Just like Eve, we, we take of the fruit and we eat. And then we're left in the same spot, maybe even a worse one, and we still believe the lie. And we do it again. See, when we don't know what God has said, when we don't know how we're supposed to relate to God, we are vulnerable to this kind of temptation. We talked about last week how Jesus instructed us to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is what this means, friends, that we need God every single moment because any moment that we are separated from him, we are not wise enough. We are not good enough. We are not able enough. We need him. He's our creator, our maker, and he is our redeemer and sustainer as well. So how does this kind of temptation play out in our lives? Well, I, I think, you know, there's the two big ones with sex and money. You know, the, the, the idea is that the, the serpent begins to, to question what God has really said about these things, saying, did, did God really say that you shouldn't enjoy sex and money? I mean, he's provided them to you, right? 
So, so shouldn't you enjoy what God has given you, what God has made? And then we're confused because we don't know God's word well enough, and so we begin to think that the Bible actually teaches that these things are bad, and then we're left in a confused spot where we think, okay, sex and money are bad things to be avoided because we think that's what God's word says, and then we don't know how to respond to the temptation because we're confused because God has made these things, and yet I I seem to think that the scriptures say that they're bad, so what do I do? And we're vulnerable. Because we don't remember that God is the one who has made these things, that God has a plan for us to enjoy these things in life, that God is wise and all-knowing and knows how we can actually enjoy them in a way that leads to life, joy, satisfaction. Many of us grew up in churches or had experience at other churches where, where these things were viewed as just bad, evil things when they're made by God. And we don't know what God's word has said about them, and we're vulnerable. And so the the serpent comes back when we're vulnerable and confused and starting to doubt and says, pleasure and material things can't hurt anybody. I mean, it feels good. How could it be bad? How could it hurt you or harm you or harm someone else? It feels good, and God knows that, and he just wants to withhold that good thing from you. So you should just take it and and know that you're going to experience joy and pleasure and satisfaction. Don't let that cosmic killjoy keep you from joy. That's what the serpent brings to us. Friends, God never wants to withhold joy from you. He wants to withhold destruction from you because he cares for you. He's like a good father, like Cameron's analogy that we talked about. He's not going to hand you a piece of glass. He's going to hand you a drink in a safe way. He's going to provide exactly what you need. He's going to ensure that the home around you is, is, is what you need it to be. He's going to, he's going to have things baby-proof when you're a baby. And when you get older, he's going to be teaching you how to walk and grow and run and play and grow into who God has made you to be. So this means we have to get to know God, friends. If we want to fight against sin and temptation in our lives, and if we want to have faith in such a way that doubt and confusion do not bring about sin, we have to get to know God through his word. Secondly, we see that sin is rooted in our thoughts and our desires. So uh, first looking at at thoughts in verse 6 there, uh, here's what it says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise... So at the beginning there, you see that word saw, and then that word good. And so what's happening here is is Eve's interpretation of her world is changing. Doubt and confusion have been introduced, and so now she's changing how she sees things, how she views things, what she believes about herself, about her God, about her environment, her world, and about other people as well. She begins to interpret things differently. She begins to see what God had, had said would be her destruction as what would actually be good for her. And this is what we do in our own lives as well. We begin to change what we believe. The woman begins to believe these different things. She, she begins to believe that God is withholding something good from her, that, that the forbidden fruit can actually bring, bring life, that, that other people need to realize this as well. She gives some to her husband because she thinks this is actually good. And then 
what she believes that's most disastrous of all. She believes, I'm able to determine what is good and evil. See, that's what's so dangerous about eating of this tree in the middle of the garden called the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's that when you take of the fruit, you declare to God and yourself and everyone around you that you know better than he does, that you know good and evil, that you are the one who can determine what good and evil is for you. That's what's happening here. As Eve begins to believe that she can determine good and evil, and so she takes of the fruit and she eats. See, Eve doesn't just believe things, but she wants things too, right? Sin involves our wants. It says, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was to be desired to make one wise. See, Eve now wants things that God never intended for her to have. Eve Eve wants wisdom of her own, separated from God. She wants to determine what's right for herself. She doesn't want to just be like God. As the serpent has said, she'll be like God. She wants to be God. She wants to be the one that determines what is good and evil for her life. She wants autonomous ability to decide these things for herself. She wants to be the ruler and director of her own life. And friends, living in this culture, this is our temptation as well. We live in a country that is all about individual freedoms and for good reasons. But we also live in the midst of a culture that tempts us with these same things that the serpent brought. We live in the midst of a culture that tempts us to think that we are king. That we know best. That our job in life is to look out for numero uno and to protect ourselves and to pursue our own interests and desires and, and to make the best life for you now. And it's a lie if it's all separated from God. It's a lie if it's contradicting anything that God has said is good for you. See, our sin involves beliefs and desires too. See, you, some of us are anxious all the time because we honestly believe when we're honestly willing to look at ourselves and recognize what's happening in our heart, we believe that God doesn't have this, that I'm the only one who can actually be in control in my life, that I'm the only one who can make sure people are safe, that I'm the only one that can make sure things happen the way I need them to happen. We get so anxious in life because we begin to believe that God is not good and God is not in control. But we are. And then we get depressed because we, we, we desire so strongly that amazing romance, that amazing kind of love. And then when we don't get it, whether it's in marriage or, or God doesn't bring marriage or, or whatever it might look like, whenever things aren't going well in that area of our life, we, we begin to, to believe different things about ourselves. We begin to think we're not worthy. We begin to think we're, we're not lovable. We begin to get depressed because we wanted something so badly, more than we wanted God and his good plans for us, that we become depressed. See, our beliefs and our desires have a dramatic impact on us. And whenever we're believing things that aren't true or we're wanting things that God has withheld from us, 
It never leads to joy and satisfaction. It might lead to temporary pleasure, but it always ends in our shame. See, thirdly, we see that sin is carried out in our actions in verse 6b. So the woman sees things differently. She begins to desire the fruit, and then it says she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So there's a few things we need to notice here about how sin actually enters in, what happens when they do this act of sin in addition to the things that we're believing and desiring. The first thing is that we sin through our actions. So it says she took of its fruit and ate. And so every sinful act is a culmination of the things that we believe and desire. See, we do what we do because we want what we want, and we want what we want because we think what we think. We have beliefs in our heart, in our mind, that lead to certain desires. And when all of that mixes together, it leads to certain actions. All of that is tied together in us. This is the way God has designed us, that we would have beliefs and thoughts and desires and that we would act out of those things. And this is what Eve does here. When she takes of the fruit and eats, it's this culmination of all the things she's believing and wanting And we do the same thing. Whenever we sin against God, it's this culmination, that that act of sin and rebellion is a culmination of the things we believe and desire. And this this is why affairs are not a sudden thing. So that affair that you or a coworker had last month at work with, with someone else in the office was not as sudden as people like to convey it as. It shouldn't be as surprising as as we think it is when we fall into sin. See, for, for the person who engages in adultery with a coworker at the office, that adultery began way before the act happened. Way before that, they began to experience difficulties at home, and they began to believe that what they were getting at home was not what they deserved, and, and that God and their spouse and their kids were withholding good things from them. And then, and then they began to, to hear these, these other things promised to them, and they began to want those things and desire those things and want the kind of pleasure and joy that they deserve to have and that God has apparently made available because this person is offering it to us. And then, so when the affair happens, It's not a surprise. It's just that you were unaware of all the things that you began to believe and desire that were contrary to God's good purposes for your life. And we're tempted in these ways all the time. In all the ways that we struggle with sin in our lives. We're tempted to believe that it was, it, was, it was just that one time. It was just that moment. You know, I just had a hard, I had a hard week. Yeah, maybe you did have a hard week. Maybe you had a hard month or a hard couple of years. But how we respond to those hard couple of years cultivates different beliefs in us, cultivates different desires in us, and it results in different actions. And they're actions that will lead to your destruction, not to your joy. This is what Eve does here. When she takes of the fruit and eats, it's this culmination. It's this idea that we do what we do because we want what we want, and we want what we want because we think what we think. Notice also that, that Eve involves others in her sin. She, and this is what we do as well. 
She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So we involve others in our sin. You know, ways that this tends to play out in our own lives is, is sometimes for, for parents or grandparents, it's the idea that, okay, do, do as I say, not as I do. The problem is that doesn't work because they learn from your actions. It's discipleship 101. We learn from the way that people lead us. This is why we have to follow after Jesus and no one else, because Jesus is the only one who leads us in a perfect way. And whenever we follow after someone, whenever we observe someone, whenever we learn from someone, we end up doing what they do, not, not just doing what they say. And so the idea that, you know, good parenting or grandparenting can involve this do as I say, not as I do idea is at least the vast majority of the time not true. Because they will do what you do. They will follow in your footsteps. You have a greater influence on their life than you could ever imagine. Because they adore you. And they will follow your leadership. They will follow in your footsteps. And so your sin will tempt them to sin. Your sin will impact them in ways that you can't imagine right now. You may be thinking, that, yeah, right, you know, that, that's not going to happen. I, I, you know, they know I'm an adult and they're a kid, and so I can do this and they can't do this. Yeah. And, and sometimes adults are able to do things that kids can't do, but a lot of times we just use those types of things as excuses for our own sin, and they end up learning those same patterns from us. Or, or for you, maybe, maybe it's you, you think your struggle with pornography is just your struggle. It's just your sin problem. It's, it's really not affecting anyone else. Well, if you're married, it's affecting your spouse, even if they don't know. It's affecting your intimacy. It's affecting your relationship. And even if you don't see that, it is. And even if you're not married, you're contributing to an industry that makes billions of dollars a year by enslaving people. I know you think it's innocent, but it's not. Because you can't know when someone's a sex slave. You can't know when someone's being trafficked. You can't know what's happening behind the scenes. And you think everything looks good in the moment. But when the cameras are turned off, it's devastating. And your sin is affecting someone else. You are bringing other people in on it. We do this in all sorts of ways. Those are just a couple of the ways that, like Eve, we bring other people in on our sin, thinking that it's, it's just innocent and it's just going to bring pleasure and joy. But we affect other people even when we don't realize it. But finally, we have to look at the idea that ultimately we are responsible for our own sin. Look at what it says about Adam at the end of that verse. So Eve gives the fruit to Adam and Adam was with her while this is happening, it says. And then it says, and he ate. He didn't have to eat the fruit. Adam is fully and completely responsible for his sin against God. There is no way in which this is Eve's fault when Adam sins. Eve may have contributed to his temptation and, and, and you know, helped the serpent as, as he tempts Adam, but the reality is, is that Adam ate the fruit, just like Eve did. 
They are both equally and solely responsible for their own, their, their own sin against God. And so are we. No one can make you sin. No one can make you explode in anger at them. No one can make you anxious. No one can make you depressed. No one can make you rebel against God in any way, shape, or form. No one can make you tempted to indulge in lust. You and I, we are responsible for the ways that we rebel against God. We are the ones that take of the fruit and eat and there are influencing factors. There's people around us. There's things going on. There's tough weeks. There's tough years. But ultimately, we're responsible. And, and just as, a, as an important aside, look at that phrase, who was with her. Adam was there the whole time. As all this is happening, Adam, the one that God spoke to and gave his words to, the one God entrusted with leadership and responsibility was with their watching, was with her watching it all happen and abdicating all the things God had entrusted to him, totally checking out. And whether, you know, there's, there's a number of things that could have been happening here. Maybe Adam was checked out emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and just kind of absent-minded, you know, men sometimes were this way, right? We're just kind of checked out on the important things that are happening in our families. Or maybe Adam was just selfish, and, and he just, he, you know, he, he wanted the fruit, and so he just didn't want to be the one to experience the consequences if they were real, and so he just lets Eve take it and just kind of waits to see what happens. Either way, it's wicked. Either way... It's, it's the first man abandoning his responsibilities. And men have been doing this ever since. Guys, we've been doing this our whole lives, and in our culture, it is rampant. And the societal effects of this kind of sin where we abdicate our responsibilities are vast, numerous, and deep. It is a large contributor into why adolescence is continuing to extend because fathers are not in homes leading by example, you know, saying, do as I do, not as I say. When men are absent from the home, you can talk to any police officer about this and they will tell you how devastating it is on communities and families and neighborhoods. And you can talk to pastors how devastating it is in churches. When men abandon their responsibilities, women and children are left to pick up the pieces. They're left to deal with the results of their sin. And bad things happen when we abdicate our responsibilities, when we reject what God has said we need to walk in, and when we're absent-minded or when we're just selfish, and we want to see what happens to somebody else first. Finally, we, we see in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, that sin results in our shame. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what's happening here? Well, Adam and Eve have, have just realized what they've done. 
They've just realized that they've rebelled against God's good plans and purposes for them. They've just realized in this moment that in their sin, they're exposed. They're completely exposed before a holy God who has only intended good for them. And they're exposed. They're naked. They are, instead of naked and unashamed, they begin to cover themselves because they're ashamed. They begin to try to make clothes, to to cover themselves up, to hide themselves from this good, holy God who has made them and, and decreed good things for them because they've rejected his wisdom and desired wisdom of their own and pursued his throne. And they realize they're naked before a God who is good, sovereign, in control, and just, and will deal justly with their sin. They, they, they begin to feel inadequate, disgraceful, broken, desperate, dirty, afraid, unclean. And oftentimes we experience this as well, don't we? We experience this feeling of nakedness in our own life when we sin against God and other people. We we, we no longer feel, feel worthy of love. We, we feel inadequate. We feel disgraced. We, we feel dirty and unclean. And we try, to, we try to cover it up, just like they did. Addicts, they, they, they try and, and hide their addiction from their loved ones, the people closest to them, thinking, I, I've got this under control. I, I, I can get rid of this thing when I want to. And, 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 and then you just hide it from the people that love and care about you. Men, men attempt to conceal their, their struggles with, with, with lust from their wives and their families, and it leads to further enslavement and destruction. Women, women hide, hide the, the addiction to, to certain kinds of, of shows or books that really are just filled with gossip and, 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 and all sorts of, of ungodly romance that, that cultivate desires and, and different kinds of beliefs that God didn't intend. And, and we, we lie and we, we think it'll protect someone else, but, but really what happens is we begin to lie to everyone to protect ourselves. And we try to cover our sin up with good deeds. We try to, we, we try to volunteer more. Or we give something in the offering next week at church or, or we, we, we try to do a good deed. And we try to cover it up. We try to make ourselves believe that we're good again. When really we're left feeling ashamed and naked and not knowing what to do. Friends, this is the bad news but there's good news as well. There is glorious grace to be received in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, God didn't just watch this happen like Adam did. God didn't just watch everything go awry and let it happen. No, God saw this coming and planned redemption from before it began. The cross and the resurrection of Christ that we celebrated a couple weeks ago were God's plan from the beginning because he knows that we need him. He knows that we need redemption, that we need forgiveness, that we need true freedom, which can only be found in Jesus Christ. And so there's grace to be found because instead of you having to cover up your own sin to have relationship with God, Jesus 
has covered your sin and shame by covering himself with it on the cross. And Jesus has stood in your place. When, when we were promised that rebellion against God would result in our death, Jesus came and stood in our place to take it for us. And what we celebrated a couple weeks ago is that it didn't just end there. On the third day, he was risen again that we might have the hope of new life. That the fall is not where things end, that there is spring coming. That new life can be found. And this life has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you with all of our brokenness, with all of our fears, with all of our confusion, with all of our doubts, with all of our shame. We come to you as those who are, are, are tempted to try and hide from you. We come to you as those who, who don't know the way forward. But God, we come as those trusting that you do. We come as those who trust in the name of Jesus Christ, who has covered our sin, who has given us freedom and forgiveness, that we might be unashamed to stand in your presence because we stand in him. We rejoice in you today, and we sing of the grace that you've provided for us in your son, Jesus Christ. And God, I pray for any who don't know you today, I pray that you would wake them up to the reality of their sin and to the reality of the hope of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. And let them trust in you today. In your awesome and mighty name we pray. Amen.